Mask off. <laughs> well, um, what a what a what a great joy to to be in the midst of um, multi generational ministry in uh, in this place, and and what a great joy. Thank you, Brooke, for for uh, for leading us in prayer this morning, and Asher for calling us to worship today, and and uh, for all the children. God is so good to us and to this church. And uh, you know, if you were here last week, you might. We began a, a series of messages. We're looking at the life and ministry and teaching of the Apostle Paul for these months of, of the summer. Um, the Apostle Paul was instrumental in the founding of the Christian faith, his leadership in forming uh, the church in the first century. His letters uh, are critical for understanding Christian theology and Christian spirituality. And, and so we're looking at his life. And as we do so, we're uh, we're looking at a little theology, we're looking at a little history, we're looking at a little geography, uh, we're looking at a little spirituality, and in hopes that by studying Paul's life, we might learn a little bit more about ourselves and our lives. And by, by uh, thinking about Paul's story and reflecting on Paul's story, that we would be open to hearing God speak to us and to our stories through Paul's story um, uh, as we go through this journey. And so if you're with us you, and if you're familiar with Paul's life, you might remember that Paul was originally, his name was Saul, and he was Saul of Tarsus who became Saul the persecutor and then later became Paul the apostle when he was converted on the way to Damascus. He was, he was a Pharisee. Saul was a Pharisee, and the, the word Pharisee means to separate. And so he was part of a, a group of Jewish people who were really interested and committed to preserving the purity of the Jewish faith as they saw it according to Torah. And he was very zealous to do so. To, and he saw the new Christian movement, this new movement of followers of Jesus within Judaism as a great threat to the purity of the Jewish faith. And so he was rising in the ranks of his own leadership in Jerusalem, um, hoping maybe someday to become part of the Jew Jerusalem council. We don't know that for sure, but it, it certainly he was an ambitious person and he was committed to, to putting a stop to this madness. Uh, as he saw it, to putting a stop to the And so he was sent up to Damascus. We left Paul in Damascus last week. And, um, and if, if you remember, he was sent there. He, he was given, he was authorized by the leaders in Jerusalem to go up to Damascus, uh, north to Damascus, in order to bind up or to arrest those followers of the way that they had heard about was expanding in Damascus to arrest them, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to put them on trial. And so while he was on his way up to Damascus, he was blinded by a light. And he had this encounter with the risen Christ who spoke to him and who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then Saul went and he was blind and he went into Damascus and, and for three days he was there and, and the Lord spoke to another person who was one of his followers, Ananias, and told Ananias to go over to Saul to lay his hands on him and to baptize him so that he might regain his sight. And so Saul went and he, and so Ananias went to Saul, Saul regained his sight and he began preaching uh, around and teaching around in the Damascus area. Uh, and was last week. So this week, we, we pick up kind of where we left off, and we're going to look at what are known as the hidden years of Paul, 14 hidden years of Paul, 
and then his uh, beginning of his relationship with Barnabas. And if, if you're following along uh, online, we'll, we'll, there'll be some maps. There's also resources for, for, for your own study throughout the week if you'd like to follow along with those. They're located on the website. And so if you take a look at the first map here, you can, you can see Damascus, uh, where, where Paul is in Damascus with the little, the little bathroom figure guy on there. And, uh, and south of there, you'll see Judea with a red dot. That's actually where Jerusalem is. It just doesn't have the word Jerusalem. And then you see Joppa and Samaria and Caesarea and the Galilee region around there. The yellow words, West Bank, Gaza Strip, Israel, those are modern uh, overlays onto the ancient uh, map. And then up to the north is Tarsus, where Paul was from. You remember, we'll touch into Tarsus today. And around the corner from the Mediterranean is Antioch. So after his conversion, he's in Damascus for three days. And then he goes into Arabia, the Arabian desert, where he'll be for three years in and around the Arabian desert. Now, the Arabian desert, or the Arabian wilderness, wilderness and desert in the first century in the scriptures are really the same thing. It's arid, wilderness, desert. Uh, the Arabian desert was not Saudi Arabia. It was the vast wilderness that went all the way up from, from Syria de, um, uh, down to the Sinai Peninsula and all the way around to Arabia. And so that's all the Arabian desert. We don't know exactly where Paul was uh, during this time in the wilderness, but we know he was, he was in Arabia. He, it's possible, and now in Arabia, in that wilderness, it's not part of the, the Roman Empire. It's actually part of the Nabataean kingdom. So he was in the Nabataean kingdom. It's possible that he went to Petra of Jordan, but we don't know for sure. If you take, take a look at the next map, there is Paul uh, going into the Arabian desert where he'll be for, for three years, and then he'll come back to Damascus, which we'll see in the next map, and then he'll make his way to Jerusalem, which we'll get to in a minute. And so that's the first part that I want to focus on today, and then we'll t go up to Tarsus in a few minutes where he'll go. Notice what happens. Paul begins preaching in Damascus right after his conversion, and this is what Luke tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 9, starting at verse 19. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Remember, didn't he come to, to take these people away? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and, and just to clarify something. In, in Luke and in John, in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of John, and Luke also wrote Acts, so in Acts, Luke, Acts, and in John, you see this phrase repeatedly, the Jews. And I just want to clarify that um, what, how this can be misleading, because uh, it, it kind of sounds like Luke says all the Jews wanted to kill Paul. But we have to remember, Paul was a Jew, 
Jesus was a Jew. 99% of the followers of the way were Jews at this time. And so uh, what Luke is referring to here is not that all the Jews wanted to kill Paul, but there was a small sliver of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem that wanted to kill Paul. And the reason I mention that is because after the first century, um, there were 19 centuries of Christians persecuting Jewish people and uh, practicing anti-Semitism. And it's a misinterpretation often grounded in this text. And so it's, it's worth noting that, that Luke doesn't mean all the Jews. He means a sliver of the Jewish leadership wanted to kill Paul. They wanted to take him down. And so, uh, you know, it'd kind of be like It'd kind of be like saying, you know, the, the Texans killed President Kennedy. I mean, that's a ridiculous statement. You wouldn't say that. So it's not that all the Jews want to. Anyway, get the point. So here's what happens. Some leadership want to kill Paul. What does Paul do? What would you do? He flees, right? He, he runs. He flees from Damascus, and he goes uh, up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason that I say he goes up to Jerusalem, this can be confusing in the text. You'll, you'll see that over and over again. Whenever it's talking about going to Jerusalem, they say we go up to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is south of Damascus. So from our 21st century minds, and we might look at that and go, no, he's going down to Jerusalem. But when Luke says he's going up to Jerusalem, that's a topographical statement and a theological statement. You would literally, when you're in the, around the Galilee area, you would go up to Jerusalem, city on a hill, and David wrote Psalms of Ascent. I mean, it was also a theological statement. When you're going up to the temple, you'd pray the Psalms of Ascent as you go up. Okay, so you get the point. So going up to Jerusalem, he's going south. Just want to clarify that. Galatians chapter 1, in verse 17, tells us this. Paul says, I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. And after three years, I, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days, but I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. Now what Paul's doing in Galatians is he's explaining that he did not come to believe the gospel um, because he learned it from the apostles. He came to believe in it through the encounter that he had with Christ and the reflecting on, on his faith. So here's the point. He was three years in the Arabian desert. What was he doing there? Why did he go there? Three years in the Arabian desert. Often when people are searching for God, they go into the wilderness. They go into the wilderness. I've had a chance to, to be in the Judean wilderness uh, in Israel and Palestine and even up further north. And it's phenomenal. It is, it's not unlike certain parts of Utah, I think. It's just this vast, incredible, arid wilderness that when you're out there, you feel so small. And, and it feels so vast. And so you get the sense of the bigness of God. And, and you just feel like you're in God's presence when you're there in the wilderness. And so that's why people, through you know, the people of God for, for thousands of years have gone into the wilderness searching for God. Moses goes into the wilderness to search for God. He meets God at Mount Sinai. You remember when he meets God at Mount Sinai? Elijah goes to Mount Horeb to encounter God. Jesus, as you remember, went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to fast and to pray and to be with the Father. There's, there's this, this incredible wilderness here in, in Utah, and, 
and, and I'm just starting to get to uh, know a little bit, and it's so beautiful, and we can play out there, and you can, you can swim, and you can bike, and you can hike, but how often do you go out into the wilderness to fast and to pray? It's right here in our backyard. Take a day and go and spend time with God in the wilderness here. See what he does. So here we meet Saul going into the wilderness, not for 40 days, but for three years. And what is he doing? He's rethinking everything he thought he knew. He's rethinking everything he learned from Gamaliel. He's rethinking all of his Greek philosophy. He's rethinking his whole understanding of the scriptures in light of his encounter with Jesus Christ. It's a profound thing to do um, for those three years. So at the end of the three years, he goes back to Jerusalem and then, or back to Damascus and then to Jerusalem. You can look at the next map. There is Paul going to Jerusalem. You can see the straight, street called Straight, right there next to Damascus. That's where he was, and he went up to Jerusalem. Now, remember, Paul has not been to Jerusalem for three years. And do you remember what happened the last time that he was in Jerusalem? He was responsible for the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was one of the deacons, and he was the first Christian martyr, and Paul, or Saul, the persecutor, oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Do you know how a stoning took place in the first century? It wasn't that they just had rocks, and they would just throw rocks at you like a pinata until you blow up. Um, it wasn't like that. The, the, the way that a stoning happened in the first century was that they would, um, the person who was a, the accused criminal would be bound up and tied on the ground face up. And the first person who was offended by that criminal would get to throw the first, cast the first stone. The stones were 30 to 40 pound boulders. And they would stand up on a ledge and drop the boulder onto the criminal's chest. And if the criminal survived that drop, then the next person who was offended by that criminal could throw the next stone on that person. So Paul got to oversee the stoning of Stephen, one of the deacons, and that's what it would have been like. And then he went around wreaking havoc in all the homes of these, of these early believers. And so um, now he shows up in Jerusalem three years later. Hey guys, I'm a changed man. I'm a changed man. I encountered Christ. I went to the desert. I rethought some things. Now I'm back. Can I join the team? How do you think they received him? Did you think they threw a party for, for Saul when he shows up in, in Jerusalem, now, now ready to be a warrior for Jesus? This is what we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. We'll come back to Barnabas in just a minute. Uh, but notice here it took one person to believe in Paul, to say, I, I believe you. I believe your story. To take him under his wing and to introduce him to the apostles. Come on, I, I, I believe you. Let, let me introduce you to to the other apostles, and so he did that. Barnabas wasn't afraid of Paul, but Barnabas helped him to become one of the, uh, one of the crew. 
So what happens after that is that Paul stays with Peter. It's called Cephas. Cephas became Peter. He Paul, so he's in Jerusalem, finally meets the disciples, they accept him, and then he goes and stays with Peter for 15 days. Now, if I had a time machine and I could choose time and place, this would be one of those moments to hang out with Peter and Paul when Paul stayed with Peter for those 15 days. What an amazing conversation that must have been. You can imagine, right? I mean, so you have, you have Paul who, who never saw Jesus but had this encounter with him and then went and spent three years in the wilderness praying and rethinking everything. And then you have Peter who literally walked with Jesus as one of his disciples for three, for three years. I mean, there's got to be some juicy conversations going on in that, going on in that environment in Peter's house. But here's the thing. They, they weren't really good friends. There was tension between Peter and Paul. They supported one another. They appreciated each other. They valued each other. But they, but they weren't the best of friends. They probably rubbed each other the wrong way. After all, as you know, uh, Peter was called to the Jews and Paul was called to the Gentiles, and so they each had their constituencies that they had to represent, and, and there's tension in trying to put these groups together, and I think it's captured really well in this famous uh, El Greco painting. If you can see uh, this painting of these, of these two guys, they're, they're there, you can tell they're close to each other, they appreciate each other, they, they value each other, but you can tell just by the image that they're not the, the best of, of friends. By the way, which one is Peter and, and which one is Paul? Peter's on the left because he, in his left hand, he's holding the keys. As Jesus said, he's holding keys in his hand. And you remember Jesus says, I give you the keys, the proverbial keys to the kingdom. And then you have Paul on the right with his finger on the scriptures because 13 New Testament letters are attributed to Paul. And so here they are. They're they're, they're, they're companions, they're partners in ministry, they appreciate each other, but they're not exactly the best of friends. After 15 years, Paul, I'm sorry, after 15 days, Peter introduces Paul to James, who's the Lord's brother and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and also the author of the epistle of James. And as Paul is preaching and teaching, there are some leaders in Jerusalem who want Paul to be put to death. So he, goes to so he comes back from Arabia, he goes to Damascus, they want him to put him to death, so he flees, he goes to Jerusalem, they want him to put him to death there. Boy, what a bummer, right? I mean, so there he goes, he wants to get put to death. And so the church says to him, uh, everybody, people want to kill you, we, you better get out of here. And so the church then takes him up to Caesarea Maritima. If you've, maybe if you've been to the ancient Near East, maybe you've been to Caesarea Maritima. It's a wonderful ancient city in ruins right now. You can visit it. And he took a ship, you can go to the next map, took a ship uh, 400 miles from Caesarea Maritima back up all the way back up to Tarsus, his hometown, where he was from. So the church said, we're just going to send you back on home, Saul. 400 miles, and Saul, Paul, would spend the next 10 years of his life up there in Tarsus. Now, we have to kind of read between the lines here a little bit because, again, these are the hidden years of Paul. They're, it's not clearly spelled out for us, but you know what I think? I, I think he moved in back in with his parents. He's 33 years old, and he moves back in with his parents to make tents. You remember, his parents were, were landowners. They, we Roman citizen, 
part of uh, the privilege. And we believe that they were tent makers because Paul um, deployed that trade later in his life to support his ministry. And here's the thing about um, tent making. Tent making is a very uh, important and thriving business in southeastern Turkey. And the reason why tent making was a very booming business in southeastern Turkey is because there was a certain breed of black goats. I'm not kidding. You can Google this or search on your own. Certain breed of black goats that were cultivated, and they roam around the Taurus Mountains in and around Tarsus there. And their hair, their black, the black goat's hair is different from the white goat's hair or the brown goat's hair. It's finer and it's stronger for some reason. And so they would shorn the black goats, and they would weave their hair together to make tents that were both durable and water-resistant. So you can see the picture of, of the goat there. Hey, buddy, a little black goat. And then uh, an image of, of uh, what the tents would have looked like in the first century. This is kind of what, what uh, these tents. And so think about this for a couple minutes. Now, undoubtedly, Saul was also preaching in and around Tarsus and doing what he can. But during these 10 years, he doesn't write any letters. He doesn't go on any missionary journeys. Uh, remember, Paul is a very, very ambitious person. He, can you imagine, let's say, I mean, he growing up in Tarsus with this incredible education, and then his parents send him to study with the greatest rabbi of the time, Gamaliel, and then he moves back in with his parents to make tents. Can you imagine that? Like, imagine getting your undergraduate at Princeton, and then you go and get your MBA at Harvard, you're ready to take on the world, and you move back in with your parents and make tents. That's where we find Paul today, um, here in this moment. And I want to pause here for a moment, because all of this is, uh, for me anyway, interesting and kind of fascinating. But, but the real question is, well, what does it have to do with me? And what does this story have to say about my story? And what does Paul's story have, have to say about my story? This period of time in Paul's life, these 10 to 14 years from his conversion to his first missionary journey, you can think of them as the hidden years or you can think of them as the in-between years. You know about those years. Maybe you had to move in with your parents for some time. Maybe, maybe you went off to college and you got your degree and you're ready to take on the world and nobody's hiring. Or maybe you lost your job and, and uh, you're rising in success in your career and the best thing you can do was, was to find a, um, a, another job and it pays less than the job you just had and now you're on this downward spiral and maybe you don't even have a job. Those in-between years, we all know about them. Maybe you lost a loved one. Um, and, uh, and, and it took several years to try to figure out what, what was going to happen next. You graduate from college and you have big dreams and nothing, nowhere to go. The in-between years, you know, and they can be very discouraging. Uh, life doesn't go the way we plan it sometimes. Interestingly, the greatest heroes in the Bible had in-between years. Let's think about this for a moment. Moses was raised in the lap of luxury, 40 years, adopted and grew up as a pharaoh's court. And then he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and so he kills that person and now there's a hit out on him. And so he flees out into the wilderness where he will spend the next 
40 years and nothing, nothing until God shows up in a burning bush and then the next 40 years are the best years of his life and ministry. And so he goes from the lap of luxury in Pharaoh's court to herding goats. Silence. Or what about King David? Remember, David was a shepherd boy and Samuel came up to David and he said, I'm going to anoint you, David, to be king of Israel. David says, cool. When do I start? And Samuel says, Saul dies. Do you know how long it took from the time when Samuel anointed David to when Saul died? 25 years. And not only that, but Saul wanted to kill David and drove him into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that he writes his best songs. The in-between years. What about Jesus? Remember Jesus at the age of 12? We meet him in the temple as a young boy, and he's astounding people with his teaching because he's starting to understand more and more that he has a special relationship with the Father. He wasn't born knowing that he was the Messiah and that he was the second person of the Trinity. You know, he had to grow in his understanding of, of his relationship with the Father. And by the, by the time he's 12, he's starting to really gain that understanding. And then we don't hear from him again until he's 30. 18 years. Living at his parents' house, working in the shop, making furniture. He doesn't begin his ministry until he's 30 years old, the in-between years. And so, so, so here's the point. When you're in the in-between years, is God working? Is God working? Is God at work in your in-between years? Is, is God at work uh, at MOPC and in a time of COVID? These are in-between months or in-between, hopefully not years. Is God at work? You bet God is at work. God is at work. God doesn't necessarily want you to be in the in-between years, but sometimes you find yourself there, whether by your decisions or the decisions of others or the economy or whatever it may be. And, and God is at work in those years. Some of the most profound work that God does in our lives is during the in-between years. And so you trust Him. You trust God for your in-between years. And, and, and you don't just sit there either, right? They get to, you get to work. You get to work. Jesus worked in a shop. Moses tending goats. You, you, go to, you get a job at Walmart if you have to, Trader Joe's. You, you get to work and you trust God. Uh, if you remember, the, the whole nation of Israel had in-between years. It was called the exile. I mean, they were in exile, in-between years. And God did some amazing work. And he told them to, to plant gardens and to have families and to pursue the shalom of the city because in the shalom of the city, you will find your shalom, uh, your welfare. And so God is at work in the in-between years. Okay, you get the point. What happens next? Acts chapter 11, Luke takes us to Antioch. Now, there are, and you can take a look at the, the map, you can see where Antioch is, just southeast uh, of Tarsus, kind of around the corner of the Mediterranean Rim. Now, I want you to know there are 14 Antiochs in the ancient Near East, so it can be very, very confusing. There's uh, Pisidian Antioch, which is in uh, northeastern Turkey, above uh, north of Tarsus, but where we are today is in Syria Antioch, Syrian Antioch, and and Syrian Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There were 500,000 people in Syrian Antioch. It was huge. It was a large population of Jews who are now becoming followers of Jesus. And not only that, but now all these Greeks, Gentiles, 
for the first time are starting to become followers of the way in Antioch. And so you have these people who are not kosher, who don't practice the food laws, and, and uh, who are not circumcised, becoming followers of the way at the same time that these Jewish people are becoming followers of the way in Antioch. And word about this gets down to Jerusalem, to the council, to, to, the, uh, to the church leaders, James and those folks, and they hear about what's going on in Antioch, and they're like, wow. Well, that's pretty cool like that this is happening it's kind of a problem but um it's a problem that that we need to solve it's a good problem but what are we going to do what what are we going to do and so we, we better send somebody up there to try to figure out how to put these they're going to start you know really going at each other if we don't help them and so what do they do but they send barnabas of course they send Barnabas. who are you going to send you know you want to send Somebody who's, who can do this, who can, you know, um, encourage these people, by the way. You know, okay, now we're going to talk about that in a second. And, and, and this is what they're wondering in Jerusalem when they hear about this. So Acts chapter 11, verse 22. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted or encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. So here's an interesting fact. Barnabas comes into the story in chapter 4, and his name is not Barnabas. His name is Joseph. And Joseph uh, was one of the Levites. He came from the tribe of Levi, which is a priestly tribe. Possible that, that Joseph was a priest himself, which would be remarkable if he becomes a follower of Jesus as a priest. We don't know that ex exactly, but we know that he comes from this priestly tradition. And right after the day of Pentecost, he becomes a follower of the way, and he becomes one of the leaders in the church. And so he's hanging around with the apostles, and they're spending time, and, uh, and they say, eventually they say, you know, we're, we're, you're not going to be named Joseph anymore. We're going to give you a new name. It's going to be Barnabas. You know what Barnabas means? I'm sure you do. It means of encouragement, literally. Barnabas was, right? It's not rocket science. He was an encourager, right? So, so they hung around with him, and they got a sense of this guy that, boy, there's something about this guy. Let, let's, we're going to name you, we're going to name you encourager, because you're an encourager. You, you know people like this. Think of one in particular, that a girl... Just a classic story, um, a classic example, I should say. Her name is Jossie Kiter, and she uh, was a girl in my youth group years ago, and, and she was a Barnabas in the youth group. You know, every time we would go to Mexico, she was the one making sure everyone had water, handing out water all the time, always encouraging, always helping out. And then she went off to UCLA, and she became a Barnabas at UCLA and around UCLA, and then she went to Harvard, and she got a law degree from Harvard Law, and she was a Barnabas around Harvard, and then she met a guy who's this awesome guy named David. He's like a Barnabas, too, and then they're just Barnabasing all around Cambridge, Massachusetts now, and it's really this sweet thing. You, you know about these kinds of people. You want to be around them. They're encouragers, and so they, they, they send Barnabas up there because he, he's the right guy. So when Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he's feeling afraid and rejected and discouraged. Who steps up to the plate to meet Paul, to take him under his wing? Barnabas does. Tell me your story. I believe in you, right? And so when the Jerusalem leaders hear about what's going on in Antioch with all these Gentiles, they send Barnabas the encourager. Now Barnabas gets up there, and he looks around, 
And he goes, wow, this is amazing. Look at, look at all this that's happening. What am I going to do? Here's these two communities, and this is like a good thing, but how am I going to put these communities together? How are we going to decide? Who, how are we going to decide? And these Jews, I, I, need, a, I need a leader. I, I need somebody who, who, who understands Greek like as their first language and, and who understands Greek philosophy to help the Gentiles and to disciple them. But, but I also need somebody who understands Jewish law and, and who can help the, the Jews to sort of try to accept the Gentiles and to put these two communities together. Hmm, is there anybody out there who knows these two worlds? Oh, yeah. Saul. Saul. It had been ten years since he had sent Saul back home to Tarsus. And he says, Saul's my guy. So, and so he goes up to, um, he goes up to Tarsus to, uh, to take Saul. And, and, uh, and, and this is what we read in Acts 11, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 11, verses 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they met with the church, taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. You can take a look at the, the next map. You can see uh, Saul going over to Antioch. I should probably put another little guy there. Maybe next week I'll put another little guy because we're going to see Paul and Barnabas going together, traveling together. But notice the important role that Barnabas plays in, in Saul's life. Um, uh, in the next sermon, we'll see Barnabas is going to take Paul on his first missionary journey and to accompany him as he preaches to all these places. And what we'll see as time goes on is that it's, it's first Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And as time goes on, it switches to become Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And what does that tell you about the perceived role in the community of these two guys? Barnabas starts to decrease, and Paul starts to increase. So let me tell you something about Barnabas types. They don't care who gets the credit. They don't, they don't, they don't need to be in the spotlight. They don't, need to be, uh, they don't need to get the attention. They just want the job to get done. Barnabas types, uh, they celebrate people, and they lift up their successes. They don't get jealous. They're happy for you. They don't feign friendliness because there's... Some, something they want from you. Barnabas is pour into other people and they take risks on other people. They see potential in people and they, and they want that potential to be released. All of us have Barnabases in our lives. Can you think about the Barnabases in your life? The very best leaders I know in business or in nonprofit work or in church work are, are Barnabases. They are encouraging people, they're constantly encouraging people. Who's your Barnabas? I've had a number of them in my life, and I'll share just one. Um, you know, obviously, my, my parents have been incredible Barnabases to me. Or that Barnabai, if it, the, the plural version. Um, so, the, and my, my wife, Death, and our kids, but that's kind of like low hanging fruit, you know? So, um, there was a man by the name of Bob Lanehart who was a really important Barnabas for me. When I first started out as a youth minister, I was 24 years old, and um, Bob was in his late 60s, and he served many years as a missionary pilot for Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF, in 
traveling in the bush in Africa and in Latin America, very dangerous missions, didn't have a lot of money, but he was kind of living in a wealthy community in a kind of wealthy church, and he taught a class at the church called Sojourners, which was kind of a radical type of, of class, and, and he, was a, he was a radical follower of Jesus. He reached out to me right when I got there. I'm 24 years old. I'm super green. I don't, I don't know how to spell my last name, um, and, 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 he, and he believed in me. He said, I, I see potential in you. And so he came alongside me, he mentored me, he mentored me. He went to Mexico deep into the, deep into way down in Baja with the youth group, drove all the way down there himself, 70 years old, hammering uh, things. And he came to my ordination service. He was visited me over and over again in the hospital when I went through cancer and I was going through chemo. He was there for me. Uh, he was there for me and constantly encouraging me. And when he died, years ago in a tragic boating accident in Alaska right after, shortly after my um, ordination service. Um, it was a visceral pain for me. I, I cried for a week straight and I couldn't even know why. I, I didn't understand the impact. Now if you try to look up Bob Lanehart on, on the internet, you're not going to find a lot of pictures of him. You might be able to find one. Maybe pastored a church, but he was a Barnabas. He was a Barnabas, and he had a profound impact on, on my life. Uh, sometimes, so who's your Barnabas? Sometimes it's not so dramatic, you know. There, I, some people received uh, notes from children in the VBS program last week. That, you know, our kids can be like Barnabases to us too, you know. So who's your Barnabas? And now the real point, of course, that I want to get to is, whose Barnabas are you? Whose Barnabas are you? Who do you invest in? Who do you pour into? Who do you encourage? Who do you see potential in and want that potential to be released? The key to being a good, good um, the, well, the key to having a happy marriage is two Barnabases with each other. That's the key to a happy marriage, two Barnabases encouraging each other. Key to business or in leadership or in management is to, to is figuring out how to be a Barnabas. The key to being a good neighbor is figuring out how to be a Barnabas to your neighbors. Uh, and the key, of course, to having people be Barnabases for you is that you're a Barnabas for others. In my short career, I've done 25 uh, funerals. And, and I can always point out, uh, you know, through those funerals, who are the Barnabases? Because if they haven't outlived everyone, they have huge funerals. People come and they say things about them. They report on them. They say how encouraging they were, how, how much of an impact they had on your life. On, on your life. Um, so whose Barnabas are you? Who do you invest in? Uh, and what do you hope people say about you at your funeral? Because you are going to have one. It's true. So just a couple of thoughts, um, just and wrapping this up right now, and we're just going to point to next week. Trust God with the in-between years. Trust God with your in-between years. God is at work. Look for the Barnabases. Give thanks for the Barnabases in your life. And seek to be a Barnabas for others. So let me stop there, and we'll...
week. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, your word to us and for Paul's life, for Paul's example, for his teaching, his ministry, his courage of faith. We thank you for Barnabas, who we encountered today, who, who, um, uh, who had the courage to reach out to Paul when everyone else was afraid and take him under his wing and, and to believe in him and introduce him to the apostles. Uh, Lord, we need people like that in our lives. We, 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 and others need us to be like that for, for them too. So help us not to be afraid. Help us to, uh, to see the goodness in others, to draw it out, to be encouraging to one another within our community here. Uh, and, and help us to trust you for each and every one of these in-between days that we live in called COVID-19. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.